title of the message this morning is Fixing What's Broken. Fixing What's Broken. You know, it's pretty obvious to most people, at least, when something is broken. There's the obvious. A broken pen. It leaks ink everywhere. A broken light. A broken TV set. A broken phone screen. A broken window. A broken down car. A broken down appliance, etc. Most of us would agree that these things are repairable, though some easier than others. But they're pretty obvious when they don't work. They're pretty obvious when they're broke. However, other things break that may seem a little less obvious or a little less easy to repair. A broken relationship. A broken trust. A broken promise. A broken heirloom. A broken heart. Or in God's church, something's broken and you're wondering what to do. Not enough finances, not enough Sunday school teachers, not enough fellowship or encouragement with the sick or lonely, not enough people being saved, baptized, or discipled. Something's broken. It's obvious at times. Which was part of the reason why I started this series on giving it away is that I feel like as a church we need to do a better job at sharing our faith giving away the gospel, the message that God gave to us, sharing that with others. But there are things that are broken that are obvious, and then there's things that are broken that are not so obvious, some things that are broken that are easy to repair, and other things that are not so easy to repair. What do you do? I believe that all too often people live with these broken things in their lives. They live with them. They know they're broken, but they just live with them. And for many people, they've actually made a choice to not fix what's broken. You ever known someone like that? They know that things are broken, but they've actually made a decision to not mess with it. Why would someone make that choice? They have come to the conclusion that maybe one of these three things, maybe other things, but at least these three things, maybe one of these three things is true. It's too hard to fix. It's just too hard to fix it. Number two, it's easier to not fix it. Or number three, they don't know how to fix it. You know, once again, if it's a broken pen, you throw it away and buy a new one, problem solved. If it's a broken light, you take that bulb out, put a new one in, problem solved. Broken phone screen, you go to the mall, go to Verizon, go somewhere, you pay your 60 bucks, get a new screen, problem solved. Or you live with it. Broken down appliance, go get a new one if it can't be repaired, just replace it, problem solved. Car issues, find a mechanic, call Brian, problem solved. But problem isn't always solved with broken relationships broken trust. There's no, sometimes not an easy fix for broken promises, broken heirlooms, broken hearts. And sometimes in churches, there's not an easy fix for what seems to be broken. But sometimes we come to the conclusion, it's just too hard to fix it. Why? Well, I've tried that before. 
I've done that before and it didn't work. So why should I try again? Ever come to that conclusion? Uh, I'm tired of being the one that puts in all the effort. Reality, isn't it? Sometimes. Some relationships. Broken hearts. I'm always the one that has to give. That's kind of how we feel at times. Or nothing's going to change anyway. So I've just come to the conclusion that it's too hard to fix. Just going to leave it alone, so to speak. Or it's easier not to fix it. Why? Because I don't want to get hurt again. Right? Um, I'm fine the way things are. We're really not fine, but we're fine. Because it's just easier not to deal with it. Or I'll just worry about myself. They can worry about themselves. I'll worry about myself. You ever had that thought before? And so, therefore, I just leave it alone. Don't touch it. Or I don't have the emotional energy to put into this thing again. So I'm just not going to worry on I'm not going to fix it. Or, number three, they don't know how to fix it. I don't, I don't even know where to start. You ever heard anyone say that? There's big life drama situation. Feelings have been hurt. There's a broken relationship. I don't even know where to start. Or, I've tried so many things and too many things already. I, I, I don't know how to do it. Or, I don't know whose advice I can really trust. I mean, because I've talked to all my friends, and this person says this, and this person says this, and this person says this. I I don't even know where to start. So I don't really know how to fix it, so I'm just going to leave it alone. So we'll just leave things as they are. And how many of us have come to this conclusion a time or ten? Thank you, all six of you. I think all of us have. We, We just choose to live with broken things. It doesn't work, but I'm okay with it. I'm not really okay with it, but I'm okay with it. I know it's not where it should be. I know it's not what it ought to be, but it's just, I don't want to deal with it. It's too hard. I don't know where to start. It's not going to change anyway. I'm just going to leave it alone. So here's another question. What would God have us to do? What would God have us to do in these circumstances? I'm not talking about the broken window. Call Anderson and get a new one. Call Pella, get a new one. That's easily fixed. I'm not talking about when there's a flat tire. Get it plugged. Put more air in it. That's easy. I'm talking about the other things in life. The broken emotional things. The broken things at church. That we have the mindset that someone else will deal with it. Somebody else will take care of this problem. Somebody else, I've said for years, when something doesn't work, it's obvious to all. But what do we do about it? What does God want you to do with it? How does God want to use you to come up with a solution to make things better? So here's the question. What does God want us to do with it? So let's address some of these excuses one at a time here, if we could, just for a few moments this morning. Number one, it's too hard to fix. What does God's Word say about this? And, and all of us have come to this conclusion one time or another. If you would this morning, take your Bible and turn to John chapter 5. I want to read to you a story that's probably familiar to some of you or all of you. 
about a man at the pool of Bethesda. John chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, if you would follow along as I read this. It says, After this, a Jewish festival took place, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. By the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda. In Aramaic, which has five colonnades, within these lay a large number of the disabled, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and realized he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to get well? Ask that question when things are broken. Do you want it fixed? Do you want things to get better? Or do you, are you happy with the way things are? So Jesus looks at him, do, Sir, do you want to get well? I mean, do you want, it, you want things to change? Sir, the disabled man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred, stirred up. But while I'm coming, someone goes down ahead of me. In verse 8, he says, Get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly, the man got well, picked up his mat, and started to walk. So for a moment, he has this idea that it's just too hard. I mean, after all, I mean, I'm disabled. I can't do this. I can't do that. Uh, Things are difficult for me, so therefore, it's just too hard. I'm not going to, I can't do anything about it. How many times have we come to that same conclusion in life? There are circumstances, things that are broken in our, in our sphere of influence, in our, in our relationships. And we just have this idea that, you know, just like the, the, like the crippled man, he says, the water is stirred, and every time I want to try to get there, there's no one to put me into it, and someone else gets in there ahead of me, and I miss out. How often do we have that same conclusion, but we're forgetting something? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We forget because when we have problems, when things are broken, what do we want to do? We want to fix it ourselves. So this crippled man who is rightfully has this attitude of, well, I can't do it because obviously he's been that way for 38 years. The reality is he says, I, 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 it's all on me. I have to fix this. I have to somehow get in and there's no one to help me. So therefore, I, I got to make this happen. Any men in here? That's right. We want to fix what's wrong. And sometimes we put that, we lay all that pressure on ourselves to fix it, and we realize that we can't fix certain things. There are certain things that only God can fix, and certain things that only God can orchestrate to make things get better. But we put that pressure on ourselves. I, I can't, it's just too hard. And we forget, where is God in this picture? What does God want me to do about this? Just for a second, consider the consequences of just giving up. What if this man would have looked at Jesus and said, you know what, I'm done, it's over, I'm, I'm not even going to try. But what he said was in verse 8, get up, Jesus told him, pick up your mat and walk. And what if that guy just for a moment would have said, what are you talking about, get up and walk? Are you kidding me? Uh, get a glimpse of the obvious, Jesus. I've been crippled for 38 years. This guy's a loony. What if he would have just said, forget it, I'm not even going to try. Consider those consequences. And consider those consequences in the church. When we have the idea that it's just too hard to fix what's not working. It's too hard to fix what's not working in our relationships. It's too hard to fix what's broken in our trust and, 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 and so forth. Where is God in the picture? The man had to put his faith somewhere. 
And he chose to do what Jesus told him to do. And it changed everything. Number two, it's easier not to fix it. I want you to consider just for a moment the woman running out of food, the widow woman in 1 Kings. So if you would take your Bibles and turn over to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 17. It's a familiar passage. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But I want to read several verses beginning verse 8 and reading down through verse 16. Then the word of the Lord came to him, Get up, go to Zarephath, that, be- that belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Look, I have commanded a woman who is a widow to provide for you there. So Elijah got up and went to Zarephath, and when he arrived at the city gate, there was a widow gathering wood. Elijah called to her and said, Please bring me a little water and in a cup and let me drink. As she went to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord God lives, I don't have anything baked. Only a handful of flour in the jar and a bit of oil in the jug. Just now I am gathering a couple sticks in order to go prepare it for myself and my son so we can eat it and die. She's all kinds of optimistic, right? (coughs) Verse 13, Then Elijah said to her, Don't be afraid. Go and do as you have said. But first, make me a small loaf from it and bring it out to me. And afterwards, you may make some for yourself and your son. Oh, I, I, I may. <laughs> I may make some for myself. It's mine. And I'm going to eat it and die. For this is what the Lord God of Israel says. The flour jar will not become empty and the oil jug will not run dry until the day of the Lord sends rain on the surface of the land. Verse 15. So she proceeded to do according to the word of Elijah. Then the woman... Elijah and her household ate for many days, and the flour jar did not become empty, and the oil jug did not run dry, according to the word of the Lord he had spoken through Elijah. It's easier not to fix it. I'm just going to do what I have to do. I'm going to prepare this little thing, and then I'm going to die. I mean, I I don't have the solution. I don't know really what to do, so I'm just going to eat it and die. It's easier not to work on this. I mean, we don't read anywhere in the story that she was out trying to find a a way to make an income. I mean, she's obviously a widow, so she doesn't have a husband to care for her. Uh, she's just got her son, so the bottom line is I'm just going to eat it and die. I'm just, you know, it's, it's easier not to fix it. I'm just going to die. My decision is made. But consider the consequences of giving up. If she would have just given up and said, you know what, Elijah, you know, no disrespect, I, I have no clue who you are. You walk into this town and you're telling me I may make a little bit after myself for myself after I feed you, who are you? Fair enough question, right? Why, 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 you're going to give me permission to eat my own food? Let's see how that would go over today. Give me first. But you see another example of where she had to make a choice to not give up even though something was broken and not working. Her cupboards are empty. We've been talking about this lately. Give us this day our daily bread. We don't really live by that as believers. We don't. Let's be honest. Freezers are full of stuff. Our refrigerators are full of stuff. Our cupboards are full of stuff. Our pantries are full of stuff. We don't Say, Lord, give us this day our daily bread because we, we, 
We have it all. But to truly trust God and say, I'm willing to give up to get and to not quit, that's a different subject. And at times, it's just easier to not fix it. I, I, I'm just I'm throwing my hands in the air. I don't know what to do about it. And then there's times, number three, they don't know how to fix it. Just don't know how. This group either does nothing or finds someone who can help. So here's another problematic situation. If you would turn your Bible back to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. It's another familiar passage. But you see an example of this. They don't know how to fix this. So follow along as I begin reading in verse 13. second. Feeding of the 5,000. Can't find my own passage. Here we go. Matthew 14, not John. Matthew 14. Verse 13. When Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by boat to a remote place to be alone. When the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd, had compassion on them, and healed their sick. When evening came, the disciples approached him and said, This place is deserted, and it is already late. So here's a problem. Stop reading just right there for a moment. So here's a problem. You got all these people gathered, and the scripture tells us that there's 5,000 plus women and children, so who knows really how many were there. But they've been out there on the, on the countryside. They've been watching Jesus do his thing. And the disciples realize that something is about to be not right. Wow, it's late. We're out in the middle of nowhere, and nobody has food. Jesus, uh, let me just tell you, you should probably send them away right now. Just, just send them all home because it's late, it's dark, we're out in the middle of nowhere. What do we do? There's a problem. I don't know how to fix it. My suggestion is just send them all home and let them deal with it on their own. That's their problem. But that's not what Jesus did. In fact, verse 16, he says this. They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Um, Jesus, can I just reiterate what I just had made known to you? We're out in the middle of nowhere. It's getting late. We don't have anything. They didn't know how to fix it. Question. Have you ever been in that situation? Something's broken. You don't know how to fix it? Maybe it's a motor. Once again, Paul Bryan, he's the fix-it guy. But when it's a broken relationship, a broken trust, a broken heirloom, something that's not so easy to fix, 
a problem. You don't know what to do. See, on the surface, we want to fix it. That's what we do. We're fixers. But we have to go, once again, back to what all three of these examples did. Back to God. Back to Jesus. They don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You give them something to eat. And then the question, or the statement, but we only have five loaves and two fish, they said to him. Jesus will bring them to me. <laughs> okay, but five and two doesn't equal a whole lot. Then he commanded the crowds to sit down on the grass. He took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed them. He broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd. Here's the miraculous circumstance. Verse 20. Everyone ate and was satisfied. They picked up 12 baskets full of leftover pieces. Now those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. See, Jesus has the answers to things that are broken in our lives. The question is, are we willing to look to him to get those answers? I don't know about you, but there's times I just want to say, skip it. I'm done. I'm over this. I feel like that way sometimes with my diabetes. I just, I, I'm tired of having it. About a year and a half ago, I said, I'm just done with this. I'm done, I'm done with this. But the only problem is you can't be done with it. Right? I mean, you got to deal with it. But you get to the point where you're just tired of dealing with stuff. And that's when you need those reminders that you got to look to Jesus. You have to. There's no other way. But consider the consequences of giving up. All these people, they would have lost an opportunity to see God work. And when we choose to give up, we lose an opportunity to see God work. When you don't know what to do, wait on the Lord. Do not just do nothing. Do not do just nothing. Wait on the Lord. Let me draw some personal applications here. Number one, you have to want to fix what's broken. You have to want to fix it. I, I don't know anybody who's had a flat tire where it fixed itself. I mean, that thing is flat as a pancake. It ain't going nowhere. And it's certainly not just going to go self-fix. doesn't work that way. At least I, I've never seen it. Anybody, anybody else ever seen that? Problems don't fix themselves. You have to want to fix them. And when we know that there's something wrong, it's really easy to say, well, that's broken and that's not working. Welcome to the obvious. It's another subject to say, how can we address this? What are some solutions? But you have to want to fix it. You have to want to fix that. The man at the pool of Bethesda, he was willing to say, okay, God, or Jesus, I'll, I'll stand up. Rather than saying, you're a nut. I'm sitting here right where I'm at. He chose to exercise his faith. The widow woman, she was willing to do what God's man told him to do, the prophet told him to do. You're nuts. I'm, I, I'm just going to eat this and die. Well, she's, she did what he said. She's willing to exercise her faith. The disciples, they would have said, could have said, Jesus, this is crazy. You know it and I know it. Five, lives two, five loaves and two fish, 
this, this, this is ludicrous. Why, why are you telling us to do this? But they chose to obey and exercise their faith in what Jesus told them to do. If problems and things that are broken are going to be fixed, you have to choose to obey and exercise your faith in Jesus. You have to want to fix it. Because problems and things that are broken don't fix themselves. Number two, you have to be willing to humble yourself. I don't know about you guys, but I hate that process sometimes. I don't want to admit that I'm wrong or that I'm the cause of the broken subject. I like to be, well, I don't like to be, but I know I'm proud. And some of you are as well. You ever met that person that's never wrong? <laughs> Come on, guys, about 85% of us. You have to humble yourself. In relationships and broken trust and broken promises, there needs to be a time of humbling and surrender. Without it, things don't change. Number three, you can only fix what you have control over. Let me give you an illustration. If I have a big knockdown, drag out World War III argument, I can only control my aspect of it. I can't control what the other person does, how they respond. I'm not responsible for them. But I am responsible to God for me. I have to control what I'm in charge of. A lot of things I can't control, but I have to control my attitude, my actions, my responses. Right? That's part of that humbling process, that surrendering process. You can only fix what you have control over. Number four, you can't fix what's broken alone. You can't fix what's broken alone. Just like I'm not a mechanic, I'm not afraid to admit that, I can't fix cars alone. I don't have the time, I don't have the energy, I don't have the patience for it. God bless other people with that. And I've realized that there are so many things in life that I can't fix by myself. But most importantly, I need Jesus to be working in and through me. Because apart from that, nothing changes. Get more frustrated, more impatient, more more proud. I have to have help. And number five, you have to be willing to accept the outcome. I don't know about you, but when every, every time something is broken, I want the desired outcome of the repair. I want certain things to happen. And I want them to happen my way and in my time and how I want it to happen. It doesn't always work that way. The disciples, they didn't see the 5,000 fed their way. The woman at the, the widow woman who was running out of food, the problem wasn't solved her way. I guarantee she was not thinking, I'm going to have a flour jug that's never going to run out. I got this oil. Every time I pour, it's going to be forever pouring. It's like Nick's magic trick, pouring the jug. He pulls it out, drops, all the drops are coming out, puts it back down, and then pours it again. It's like, wait a minute, how'd that happen? It's the jug that won't run dry. It didn't happen her way. Um, the pool at Bethesda, I mean, according to the man who was crippled for 38 years, he had to go inside the pool because that's the only way the healing could come. Healing didn't come his way. And I find in life that things that are broken don't get repaired our way. 
Jesus has his own way of doing things sometimes. And I have to be willing to accept that. The all comes up to him, not me. And sometimes, sometimes, he chooses not to repair. Oh, doesn't that just rub you the wrong way? Because we have our expectations. And we want God to do it that way. What does the Bible say about the brokenhearted? If you would turn your Bible to the book of Psalms. So I know we've all had broken hearts one time or another. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17 says, You do not want a sacrifice or I'd give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You'll not despise a broken and humble heart, God. See, sometimes God uses the brokenness to make of us what he wants us to be. And sometimes that's part of that humbling process. Is that he's molding us. He's, he's making us. He's, he's creating in us what he wants us to become. And the very things that we despise and reject and hate and would never choose are the very things that sometimes God allows in our life to make us who he wants us to be. I don't know about you, but I look at different people in all kinds of different walks of life. I think of President Lincoln. Failure after failure after failure after failure after failure after failure. 16 different times or 15 different times in his political career he lost the vote but one time he won most of us would have given up Thomas Edison in a light bulb he said these thousand things I know don't work <laughs> but he found the one that did most of us would have given up it's the failure at times and the brokenness that God uses us, uses in our life to make us who he wants us to be. He says he uses a broken spirit. He says he'll not despise a broken and humbled heart. Psalm 34, back a few chapters. Psalm chapter 34 and verse 18. He says, the Lord is near the brokenhearted. He saves those crushed in spirits. Those are things we don't enjoy. But those are the things that God uses. How about Psalm 147, verse 3. This is the amazing one. He heals the brokenhearted and bandages their wounds. In all these circumstances, when we're in the midst of the brokenness, it seems like eternity, doesn't it? It seems like it's lasting forever. Because there's so many uncertain things that you just don't know. I'm looking out when you know several of you have gone through cancer and you get that news. And you're just like, what's the outcome? How long is this going to last? Can it be healed? How is this going to affect my family? Lots of unknowns. But it's the very thing that God often uses to teach you things, to teach you how great he is. Some of you that have been through it, you're my heroes. The question is, are we willing to wait on the Lord? I came across an article this last week about waiting on the Lord. 
I didn't know when I was going to use it, but as I was putting together this message, it came into play. By the name of a man by the name of Rick Azell, he wrote this and just talked about waiting on the Lord. And he says these four things. Waiting on the Lord requires patient trust. Waiting on the Lord means patient trust. Can I be patient as I trust him to work through it? That's hard. Because when things are broken, I want them fixed now. It doesn't matter whether it's a relationship or something in the church that needs to be addressed. You see, as I look out at the church, I say, wow, we could really be doing a better job of sharing our faith. We could be doing a better job of trusting God to meet needs financially. We could be doing a better job of seeing work projects completed. And we come to the conclusion, well, I don't know where to start, so I'm just going to leave it. Uh, it's too hard, so I'm not going to touch it. Uh, it's just easier not to mess with it and let someone else do with it. But then the question comes, what does God want me to do? Waiting on the Lord requires patient trust. Number two, Waiting on God reminds us that God is in control. Because <laughs> I want to change the outcome right here, right now, my way. And God is saying, you can want all you want, but I'm still in charge. I'm still in control. And only what I want to happen is going to happen, just so you know that. Why, he's a sovereign God. Waiting reminds us that I'm not in charge, and it reminds us that I'm not God. Number three, waiting on the Lord allows God to do His work. When things are broken, that pause gives God an opportunity to work. And I find in my life and the circumstances I've been in is that God is often doing things in the background that I had no clue of. He's working in ways that I couldn't imagine. He's got things going, and He's got a process started, and He's got a chain events that are going to take place that I, I wasn't even aware of. And guess what? He didn't have to ask my permission. He's God. But that waiting gives him an opportunity to work. And number four, waiting on God increases my strength and trust in him. Waiting causes me to get stronger because as he does do his thing, it gives me confidence that he's going to continue to do what he knows is best for me. I don't know about you, but I find that there's a lot of broken stuff in my life. Oh, you're a pastor. Right, and the point is what? We're all human. We all have broken things in our midst. The question is, what do we do about it? Are we willing to just stick our head in the sand or... And, and just say, well, it's too hard. It's easier just not to do anything. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what to do, so I'm not going to do nothing. The question comes back to what does God want? What does God want? And then the other question is, what is he trying to teach you through it? What is he trying to teach you through it? Remember the premise. When something's broken, not working right, it's obvious. And it's usually obvious to everybody. But our job is not necessarily just to point it out and say, well, see, I told you. Our job is, is to address it as God would have us to address it. What does he want us to do about it? Doing nothing is not an option, at least not for a true child of God. 
because we shouldn't be satisfied with just saying, well, well. We should want to address it so that we can be more like Christ and let God do his thing so that we see him and praise him for it. A friend of mine used to always say, God can take the greatest problem, turn it into a project that he can be praised with later. See the progression? Problem, project, praise. If we can view it in that way, we're going to see God do something great. If not, we're going to miss God's work. We're going to miss the opportunity to see him do something special. It's a challenge to all of us. So when we look at things internally in our homes, in our lives, and we also look at things in our church, what do we do about it? It's too hard. It's easier not to fix it. Well, I don't know how to do it, so I'll just leave it alone. But the question is, what does God want you to do about it? How does he want you to respond to it? What is he trying to show you, teach you? What's he trying to do in your life through it? All those examples. The woman, or the man at the well, pool of Bethesda. He had to exercise faith and obedience. The widow woman had to exercise faith and obedience. The disciples had to exercise faith and obedience. You and I have to exercise faith and obedience. That's what God works through. We can't have the blessings without sometimes the obedience and the brokenness. So my challenge to you is today is this. How does God want you to respond? Because we all have broken things. Things that we would not choose, things that we would not pick. How does God want you to respond to them? And the second question is, are you willing to do it? Are you willing to do it? Let's pray.